This is the last of four messages in Dr. Joel Hunter's series, Trouble in the Best Marriages. Although he's using marriages as his primary example in these messages, Dr. Hunter says these teachings apply to most relationships we experience. In this series so far, Dr. Hunter has covered the following subjects. Deciding without discussing, denial and disguise, and aiming blame. The last message deals with living in consequences. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 24 will be Dr. Hunter's scripture text, and it reads as follows. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, in this year of preaching about relationships, the why of relationships, and laying the foundation of how our relationships prepare our theology, we come to a close on this section of adult-to-adult -adult relationships, personal relationships. And we have observed in this section the not only the establishment of those relationships, but the tendencies and the temptations that have tended to destroy those relationships since our father and our mother, Adam and Eve, existed. And to demonstrate some of those temptations... Uh, we have been watching a little extended parable, a little soap opera of our very own, and we've been watching the lives of Eric and Jessica. And in, again, the close of this section, we come to a finale of that uh, scene. And we find today that Eric and Jessica are living in the consequences of their bad decisions, of their egotistical decisions. And we find that they are about ready to even trust God with this thing. Now, they seem to be destitute. But we see as this scene unfolds that God has a way of being merciful and providing even in weird circumstances, even in weird ways. Let's return one more time to the days of our lives. 
like smog clouding the horizon, like sand through the egg timer, like that annoying thing flashing 12 o'clock on your VCR. So flash the days of our lives. Discovered that Bob has been kidnapped. Jessica found new skills as a seamstress, and Eric got his Trans Am back when the man from Repo Depot decided that having it there was bringing down the value of his car lot. We join Jessica now as she performs her householdial duties. Householdial. <clears throat> her dusting. Oh, Eric, what are we going to do about Bob? He's been missing for three weeks since that mysterious Susan woman picked him up at the repo man's. Oh, I can't believe that anybody would ever want to kidnap Bob. And what are we going to tell his family? We can't keep telling them that he's working late at the office. They're going to catch on. Oh, Eric, everything is wrong. Jessica, I wish you wouldn't do that. Do what? Dust the boxes. This is our furniture, Eric. This and that Trans Am are all that we own anymore, and I'm at least going to keep them dust-free. Oh, by the way, look what I got for the baby's nursery. Isn't it perfect? Jessica, this is ridiculous. Well, it may be ridiculous, but this is the way it is. This is our situation. We behave badly, and this is our lot. The situation is hopeless. Wait, Jessica, I just remembered something. What? We believe in God. Well, don't you get it? Our situation is hopeless. Thank you, Lord. Honey, are you getting a fever again? Do you want me to take care of you? No. I mean, no. You're not getting it. What I'm saying is, our situation is hopeless. We've messed things up so badly that there's nowhere left to turn. Maybe now we'll let God step in. God loves hopelessness. Well, He doesn't love hopelessness. What He loves is when we're hopeless. No, not when we're hopeless. What he loves it is when our hope is hopeless. To grace, grace. My name is Jessica. I'm talking about heavenly grace. Are you seeing someone else? Sweet, bountiful, wonderful grace. This real or a dream? <laughs> Good one. I love it when we talk existentialism. Oh, Bob, it really is you. How have you been? Oh, gosh, it's good to see you. What happened, and what was that dance all about? Oh, it's a Siamese homecoming rumba. What? Susan taught it to me. Susan, did she hurt you, Bob? Yes. Once, long ago, when we were separated. 
separated. It's exactly what you think. Bob and Susan. We're married. Susan and I were Siamese twins, separated at birth. What? When? Where? Siamese at birth. I prefer not to say where. Bob, what about Susan? Well, she's led the most interesting life. Most of it as a spy for Tupperware. In the Amazon and parts of the Nile. Well, I didn't know those areas were tough competition for Tupperware. Well, it took them several months to realize they weren't. But by then, she was so far undercover. It took years for them to get the information to her that she didn't have a job anymore. How upsetting for her. Yeah, but she's really become an excellent undercover artist. Really? So where is she now? Right here. Wow, she is good. Well, do we get to meet her? Check your watches, if you will. It's exactly two o'clock. <gasps> I'm Susan. I'm so proud of her. Wow. How long have you been in there? Eight days. Just to stay in training. Gee, you know the resemblance between you two is really frightening. <laughs> Susan, I, I have to know why have you been calling us friends of MCI? I got a better rate with you than I did Bob's family. <laughs> They refused to sign up. <laughs> well, why always at two o'clock? Two o'clock was the best time to call, but. It kept cutting out on me. I'm switching back to AT and T. So now you're reunited. And, And it feels so good. <laughs> I'd like to offer a suggestion, if I may, to help you out of your present situation. Well, please go right ahead. I'm going to need a cardboard box to lay my head on for a few months. So. If you'd like to have a roommate to help out with the rent, oh yes, that would help. Thank you so much. And I'm still until December too. Wow, both of you living with us. It's like an answer to prayer. Well, God does have a sense of humor, honey. Call, <laughs> call. Oh, sorry. Habit. Listen, I'm gonna need a little something to zip around town in. Do you know who owns that dump? The Trans Am. Well, yes, it's yours. Any terms, any payments. Oh, great! Well, you know, Jessica, this is not exactly ideal, but looks like all our needs have been met. Maybe now we can relax just a little bit. <sighs> Eric. Yes, dear. It's time. It's time. Uh huh. It's time. Oh my gosh! It's 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 time. It's time. Oh, I, I've got to get to a hospital. Is this the final episode? Is this the final? 
Is this the... Is this the final episode? Perhaps not, viewers, as we look each week and see the Jessicas and Erics of our own lives in our own selves. Hopefully, however, as we do search ourselves, we do not find a Bob or a Susan. But indeed, this is the last installment of this serial, and all's well that ends well, as Jessica, Eric, Susan, and Bob ride into the sunset to bring new birth into the days of our lives. Well, what a perfect lead-in to what it's like living outside the Garden of Eden. It is disorienting, it is crazy, it is weird. But it is not inaccessible to the provisions of God. Let me talk to you today about what is traditionally known in the scriptures as the curse. If you will turn to your uh, third chapter of Genesis. Those of you who have your scriptures with you, they want to read along with me. And we will see... How God's provision, while it is, in Eric's words, not exactly ideal, still very plain. <clears throat> I'll try very hard to resist. You know, when you got a little bit of extra time on the end of the service, you know, you tend to go a little bit longer. And, and uh, last night, poor Saturday night, they always get it with both barrels. And I, I gave them about a 45-minute lecture on just the theological exegesis of this passage. It is just so great. But I'll try and confine myself to just a couple of points for you so that I can get the rest of the message out. Starting with verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. Now, I want you to notice here that different from the dealing with Adam and Eve, when it comes to the serpent, the curse is on him personally. This establishes the war between the Lord and the devil in earthly terms. Cursed are you. There's a war going on now. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. In other words, even from the very beginning, People are going to be on my side. And people will be those whom you attack. Now, let me just digress here just for a second. The word enmity in Hebrew gives the image of blood feud. It means blood feud. And it also, as you read further in that verse, talks about the generations of this blood feud between your seed and her seed. Your, your seed would be Ephesians 6, you know, all the proliferation of the spirits that inhabit the heavenlies, and her seed would be the generations to come after her. Concentrate with me just for a second on that word enmity and the image of blood feud, because it has within it 
not only the theological doctrine of original sin, but also its cure. You see, if sin comes through the blood, then sin is much more than just a behavioral digression. Just more than a behavioral aberration. Sin is the state into which we were born. It is the predisposition out of which everyone is bound to sin. So the doctrine of original sin comes through our status, through our generation, through our blood. But also the cure for this sin comes through blood. The blood of Christ. So from the very beginning, God pronounces that the war will be won by the blood of Christ. But he goes even more. He goes even farther than that. Read the next verse with me. And he shall bruise you. He's talking about the seed of the woman, Jesus. He shall bruise you on the head. Now, again, in Hebrew, the word head doesn't mean just the thinking part of the body. The word head, this word, also means in essence, in principle, in summary. Therefore, this battle is a battle of principle. It's a battle of virtue. It's not just a battle of behavior. It's not just a battle who can win politically. It's a battle of virtue. It's a battle of morality. Listen to that. I'll tell you a little story later that will amaze you. And you, talking to the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. The imagery here, again, the Hebrew imagery is you will lie in wait for him. You will watch for him. Therefore, it is hardly ever a face-to-face battle. Heel is something behind you. Satan comes up in his craftiness, in his subtlety, and takes us down in ways we don't immediately recognize. I'm, I'm starting to do it again. I'm starting to go off. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, and yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Remind me to preach you an entire sermon on that little piece of a verse right there sometime. There are just a lot of answers to our present state in that little verse, and, and, and someday I just want to just take off on that. But I'll resist the temptation today. Then... To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, he didn't say cursed are you. He doesn't say cursed is Eve and you. He said cursed are your circumstances. Cursed is that in which you live. It will be antagonistic to you. It will be difficult to you. Your circumstances will come apart at the seams. So therefore, the curse is a framework in which they live. Read on with me. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, 
the man has become... Now, I, I just want you to notice, I, I didn't tell this to the rest of the service, but, and, and I'll just take a minute here. I want you to see he is taking care of Adam and Eve. He's taking skins, he's clothing them. He's taking care, he's nurturing them, he's taking care. Now look at this very next verse, because it seems out of context. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of, gar- of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, let me answer two questions that people usually have when they read this passage for study and for inquiry. The first question people usually ask is, why didn't they die? God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why didn't they die? Well, in Scripture, death, is not the opposite of existence. In Scripture, death is the opposite of life. Therefore, what happened on that day is life was reversed. Life began to be lived backwards because you can be alive and be dying every day. Because life isn't the opposite of existence, it's the opposite of life. What happened that day was the establishment of what modern scientists call entropy. It is the slow disillusioning of life. It is the dissolving of life. It is the progress from order to disorder. It is living life in its opposite where you expect to have fulfillment, you find after the accomplishment, emptiness. Where you you expect to have the accumulation of goods and security, the accumulation mounts up to twice as many problems as you had before. You see, life is backwards. It is probably no accident. It is certainly very symbolic that evil is live spelled backwards. It is very important for us to note that Adam did die that day, and so did Eve. They died to a life of accomplishment and security, and they began to live a death of disintegration. John Calvin said, A man cannot go about unbounded by the many forms of destruction that envelop him. That is the description of our circumstance, and that is the description of earthly life. The other question people have is why did God get so jealous at the end that he would kick them out of the Garden of Eden? Was he so insecure that he could not let them know what he knew? Well, I want you to remember a few things here. First of all, as we look at that verse, look at verse 22. If you have your scriptures with you, look at that verse with me. Then the Lord God said, Behold, 
The man has become like one of us. Now, who is us? Well, remember when we discussed uh, Genesis 126, let us make man in our image. The us, we said, was God. Elohim is the Hebrew word, and it has both a singular and plural uh, meaning. That is to say that what later Orthodox Christianity found with the doctrine of the Trinity is that the identity of God is both singular and plural at once. And the reason that he made us for relationships is because he wanted to make us in his image and relationships are the way that we are both singular and plural at once. When we are in a relationship, we are both alone and together at the same time. And that reflects the mysterious, deep nature of God. And so when God said, Behold, he has become like one of us. He's talking about himself. He has become God-like, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to remember this also in Hebrew. Knowledge, knowing, means relationship. It's not just a cognitive fact. It's not just a Greek piece of some puzzle that has no effect on you. Knowing means you have a relationship. And so what God is saying is they have a relationship with evil now. Now here's the difference. Reggie Kidd and I were talking about this week and he reminded me of a passage in uh, Paul Tillich that points this out. The difference is this, that God can transcend evil to the place where he is never marked by it, he is never tainted by it, he can actually use it for good. When Scripture says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, what Scripture is really talking about is God can use everything, even bad, to bring good. And therefore, God can have a relationship with evil and use it and not be harmed by it. But when it comes to man, that's not true. Men and women went for that fruit because we wanted, to, we wanted to say, you know what, we can use any means for good and we, we don't have to be infected by it. We don't, have to, we don't have to be tainted by it. We can use sometimes some off-color stuff and we can get done good and not be endowed with the evil that we have used. Not true. That's the big difference. When man formed a relationship with evil, they were infected by evil to their own destruction. They tried to have the control that God had, couldn't have it, they couldn't transcend evil, and so when man partook of evil, it literally became a part of his life, and it remains so to this day. If you use evil means, evil uses you. You become infected unto death. And so what God did was say, you know what, these people are so infected and so divorced from me now and in such a fallen state. And there's another tree in this garden, the tree of eternal life. And symbolically, this is saying, if they reach out and partake of this tree, they will live forever in their present state. Their, straight, their state of separation, their state of not being redeemed. And therefore, God did what was very lovingly. God continued to take care of them by kicking them out of the garden. By not giving them access to that which would doom them 
to remain forever in their present sorry state. As a matter of fact, God kicked them out into an atmosphere that was so unfriendly that they would have to come face to face with their sorry state every day. Now that seems like the worst thing that could happen. It was the best thing that could happen. I don't know how many of you remember the first time you were ever caught dead to rights, red-handed in the middle of sin. I remember the first time I ever tried to steal anything. And the owner of that store saw me and came to me and nailed me and kicked me out of that store. I was absolutely mortified, ashamed, embarrassed, sure my entire life was ruined. Worst day of my life, best day of my morality. Because I was never tempted to steal again. Every time I was tempted, I remembered that shame, that awful, awful feeling. Getting caught's the best thing that can ever happen to you. You know that? Because it inflicts the pain of looking face to face with what you really are. And so God put us out into a field of thorns and thistles as a great favor to us. As an invitation to redemption. As if to say, if you can't see your need for me out there, you'll never see it at all. Now, let's talk just for a moment about the quality of God whose judgment is always both justice and mercy. You see, the justice of God, as I just explained to you, contains an element of mercy, but it's also very hard, very plain, very difficult. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. And you remember who we just talked was the deceiver. Don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. God has this wonderful system of justice. It says in Jeremiah 51, 56, that our God is a God of recompense. He will repay in full. Now there's a frightening thought, isn't it? It's a frightening thought to be given into the hands of a living God. God is a God of justice. Now, some of you sit out there and say, Hunter, I know you say that, and I know he's supposed to be, and maybe somewhere off there, they're going to get theirs, but I know a bunch of boogerheads who don't give a rip about God, and they're making their way very well, thank you very much. As a matter of fact, I know Christians who are downright hypocrites who act one way on Sunday and they go the other way and on Monday and they just act any way they want to and they are making out fine and by the same token I know people who are trying to live out their principles with all of the energy they have and they have trouble after trouble. Where's the justice in that? Because it seems to me that it just isn't holding up. Well, the key word there is seems. You know, I heard a great story the other day. Uh, I, I went to listen to Bobby Bowden, and uh, that great theologian, Bobby Bowden. And uh, he told a story in his talk that, that is just perfect for this, for this. He said when he was in uh, college, he played on a baseball team, too, as well as football. And he went to Sanford University in, Bur in Birmingham. And uh, he, he said he was, up to, he was up to bat. And what made this even sweeter was that his old baseball coach was a member of the audience that he was talking. He says, Coach, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I remember it. He said, I hadn't hit 
a home run ever in my college career. He said, I wanted a home run so bad I could taste it. And he said, one day I was up at, at the plate, and he said, there came the perfect pitch. And I connected with that thing, and that ball just took off. And he said, it went in between the, the uh, second baseman and the shortstop. And he said, it didn't have a lot of height, but it just had such velocity that it still continued in the air between the, uh, the left fielder and the center fielder. And he said, as I was rounding first, I was looking out there. And he said, those two were taken off after the ball. And he says, now, you know, even in college back then, not all ball fields had back fences. So here's this ball, as long as it can roll, that's how far they got to run. And I'm going toward second. These guys are still running toward that ball. And he says, I'm rounding second. And he said, I'm thinking in my mind, oh, this is great. I've got my first home run. This is fantastic. And I'm going toward third. And there's my old coach saying, come on in, go on in. And he says, by this time, they'd gotten the ball. They had relayed it to the shortstop. He said, I'm going down third baseline, and I see this little dot of a catcher. He's got one foot on home plate. He's got one foot on the third baseline, and he's just waiting for that ball. And he said, it was too late to turn back. He said, I made a decision. I had to go ahead. But the closer I got to him and the more I saw his eyes, I could see that ball coming in. And it was only a matter of question, which was going to get there first, you know? So he said, I just lowered myself. And he said, I plowed into that catcher. And he said, the ball got there exactly the same time as I did. And lo and behold, that ball popped out. And I bowled him over and fell on home plate. And home plate apart said, see? And he said, I stood up and he said, I had my first home run. I was so happy. But then he said, the first baseman just kept saying, throw me the ball. And the catcher just picked up the ball and threw it to the first baseman. And the first baseman stepped on first base. And the first base umpire said, he's out. He said, in all of my rush, I'd forgotten to tag first base. (laughs) He said, so what I thought was my first home run was just another out. Then old Bobby said, you know, I kind of look at Jesus Christ like first base. It can look like people are doing home runs out there all day long. But if they haven't gone through Jesus Christ, they got nothing. There's no score. There's only outs. And you know what? People know that. I, I, I really believe that the creeping emptiness in people's lives, no matter how much they have, is because they, they have this creeping awareness that this really doesn't matter. There's an emptiness here. I'm not scoring anything. God is just. I don't ever want you to doubt it in your mind. God is just. But God is also merciful. Now, you you realize we live in a weird place with thorns and thistles, and and, and you realize that, that, that it's kind of a weird world, and so when God answers prayer, a lot of times He's going to answer them in a weird way. Because we're living life backwards, and, and God knew that, and so kind of He's making provisions. This was a perfect perfect sketch with, you know, God answering a prayer in, in kind of a, a not a, a wonderful way, but nonetheless, he got, got the job done. I want you to know that God is merciful, that he blesses his people, even in the midst 
of his judgment. If you look, as a matter of fact, in those verses, most people, when they see and read the curse, all they see is the bad news. You ought to see the good news in here. It says this. To the woman, he says, in pain you shall bring forth children. That's good news. There's going to be pain, but there's also going to be children. That's even better news than no pain at all. He says, your desire will be for your husband. Believe it or not, that's good news. That is good news. That's a blessing. You're going to be married. That's good news. When it comes down to God's provision, all people can read when they look in here is thorns and thistles. He says at least three times. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it. And then he says, Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And then he says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Do you see what he's doing all through there? He's saying, no matter how tough it gets, I'm going to provide. I'm going to provide. He is able, more than able, to do what you need today. We just sang that, and it's true. God blesses us in the midst of this crazy, mixed-up, circumstance frame of destruction. Well, let me just let me just close with this. Why does God put us out here at all? It's the biggest favor we've ever had. The favor is this, so that we can immediately, through our destitution, through our discouragement, see our need for God. And see it so plainly, only... Only the willingly blind would not see it. Now, there are those who say, well, I'll tell you what, let's try to improve life through technicalities, through better programs, through money here and there. There are still those. But there are those to whom God has given the gift of faith who say, no, the bottom line is we need God. We need God. And all the rest will not come close to answering the problem. You know why? Because it's a battle of principle. It's a battle of virtue. He shall crush Satan's head, and he shall do it, not only through the blood, but through winning the battle in morality. I I told you I'd make a reference to that later in the sermon. Here it comes. I hate to trash this woman two Sundays in a row, but our our beloved Surgeon General said something else this week that was just... I mean, this, it's just absolutely stupid. I just can't believe she said it. She was talking about trying to address the problems of the rampant sexuality of the nation and all of the problems that are coming from that. And she said, you know, the government could work with religious leaders if religious leaders would just quit trying to moralize the issues. If they would just stop moralizing the issues, that is the issue. (laughs) If we get morality back, we've got no other issues. You understand? 
to have a doctor concentrate on the symptoms and not the cause blows me away. I can't understand it. By the same token, I can't understand it with people who look at life and say, if I just fix this a little here and fix this a little there, maybe my life will go better. No, we need God. God's the only one that can fix it. And you know what? Sometimes when he fixes it, it's going to hurt. Because we're not living in Eden anymore. We got kicked out a long time ago. And this ain't Eden. And there ain't no way back. But it's like the physician who looked at the little boy out on the mission field. He didn't have any anesthetic, but this boy needed a procedure on his ear. And the physician knew that he could do it. And he looked at this little boy before he operated, and he said, Honey, I'm going to hurt you. But I'm not going to injure you. I'm going to cure you. God says that very same thing to us. You're living in this world, and some of my solutions are going to hurt, but they're not going to injure you. They're going to cure you. We need God. Pray with me, and then we'll ask Pastor Moulton to come and share communion. God, thank you for making our need of you so evident. Open our eyes, God. Open the eyes of those who have not yet understood that you are the solution. In a way, we are so grateful to live out among the thorns and the, and the, and the thistles because, because it makes everything seem clear to those who believe. Father, we thank you for this medicine of eternity that we are about to share. And we ask you to be with us during this most sacred time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like the, to ask the communion servers to take their places. This is a different kind of meal that we're about to receive. You know, sometimes we get together to eat to celebrate. Sometimes we get together to eat to commiserate. But this is a kind of meal where both the wrath, or the judgment, and the mercy of God meet. It is a place where the great physician knows that even though we hurt and should hurt, that we can come for healing and grace. We sing a song sometimes that says, We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. This is that place where God's wrath and his mercy meet. We know that because the Apostle Paul said that anyone who partakes of this table without rightly judging the body of Christ eats and drinks to his, his or her own condemnation. In other words, without knowing Jesus, all we receive from this table is the wrath of God and not the grace. That's why it's so important that you and I approach this table with Jesus Christ as our Savior and recognizing who He is for us, the One who died that we might live. This is a meal to celebrate life.
God's justice condemns, God's grace restores. What God's justice demands, God's grace provides. What God's justice takes captive, God's grace sets free. Not only do the justice 
and mercy of God meet at this table in these elements. But as we partake, they live in us. God's wrath and mercy meet. And we find the forgiveness of our sin. We find the freedom that comes from no other way other than through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. This is my body which is given for you. After he had supped, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said, I want you to drink from this cup, each one of you. For this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Pray with me. Father, we recognize that this table... This table scares us because of the justice of God. We recognize, Lord, that we have no place at this table on our own merit. But because of your grace and your mercy, you stretch out your arms to us and you say, Friend, come up higher. Come close. It is your grace that receives us. It is the shed blood of Christ that sets us free to live lives in a confusing world that reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this gift. Let us walk knowing that we are no longer under condemnation. But just as your word says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that you have set us free to live in him and for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. The Apostle Peter knew what it was to receive both Jesus' words of wrath and his words of grace. And listen to what Peter has to say to us. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Those promises are ours. Let's live like it. Go in peace. Amen.